Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at it in, all, in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We've been working our way through the book of Habakkuk, which is an unusual prophetic book. It's unusual in that it records a conversation that the prophet has with God and doesn't, uh, all the other books usually just relay a, a message from God to people. But Habakkuk lets us see his own internal struggle with what God is saying and how he is wrestling with things that he hears from God and yet his heart has a hard time accepting and understanding it. And we find ourselves, many of us, in very similar circumstances. We pray and we bring our questions to God, and God encourages us to do that, and God answers, and then we struggle to accept those answers, and we work through that until finally, hopefully, we end up where Habakkuk ends up in chapter 3, at rest, rejoicing in God's presence. So we'll get there, but we have to work through a lot of stuff to get to chapter, the end of chapter 3. And so today, 
we're looking at the second part of God's answer to Habakkuk's second question, which was, God, how can you, a pure, holy person, use such an evil force as the Babylonian army to discipline your people in Judah and Jerusalem? So his question was, how can God use this great evil for good? And God answered him first. He said, the righteous shall live by his faith. He says, trust me. And then the second part of that answer, which is what we're looking at today, is a promise of judgment on Babylon. The Lord reassures Habakkuk and us that all evil will be punished, including the evil of Babylon. Until then, the righteous shall live by faith, but then evil will be punished. I'd like us to look at our text under three headings. First, let's look at the defeat of the invaders, defeat of Babylon, and the woes that God pronounces on them. Second, let's look at the victory of the surrendered, meaning how do, how do we process evil coming into our lives and God using that? How do we respond to that? And thirdly, let's look at the triumph of the conquering Savior, the defeat of the invaders, the victory of the surrendered, and the triumph of the conquering Savior. There are five woes that Habakkuk, or God, through Habakkuk, pronounces on Babylon. And if you're familiar with Scripture, in the prophetic literature especially, a woe oracle was a pronouncement of judgment, but it was a pronouncement of judgment on a particular sin. Typically, a a woe oracle has two parts. There's an explanation of what that particular sin is, in that person's life or a nation's life or a group group's life. And then there's a pronouncement of specific judgment corresponding to that sin. And so by responding this way with woes to Babylon, uh, to Habakkuk's concern about the evil of this invasion, the Lord assures him that he is not ignoring any sin. He's very specific what these sins are. Even if he is using these sins, these evil things, for good, all evil will be punished. And these woe oracles show us that in the case of the Lord v. Babylon, all arguments have been heard and a decision has been reached. Babylon will be punished. Now let's look at each of the woes to help us understand what specific sins Babylon has been convicted of. First, in verses 6, 7, and 8, they take what is not theirs. Babylon is condemned for their excessive plundering of the nations they conquered. When the Babylonian army defeated a particular city or a particular tribe or nation, they took everything valuable to Babylon. Things, people, They considered everything spoils of war and theirs by right. But the Lord says, the Lord says that everything they've taken must be repaid, that these are debts to be repaid, that Babylon itself will be plundered, that the plunderers will be plundered. And of course, this is exactly what happened. You know, our passage begins uh, in verse 6 with, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, 
who are all these? These are all the plundered nations. These are all, all the people that suffered under Babylon. And in time, in the course of history, there will be other nations that will plunder Babylon. In fact, just a few, after a few decades of dominance, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medes and the Persians who took all the wealth of Babylon for themselves. Babylon was plundered. The second woe in verses 9, 10, and 11 condemns Babylon for taking refuge in their wealth and power. Babylonians built what they considered an invincible city. It had 100 bronze gates and walls wide enough for a four-horse chariot to ride on top. It's a tremendous achievement in the ancient world. They set their nest on high and felt safe from the reach of harm. But the Lord says that in their pursuit of safety, they have forfeited their life. The plundered stones and beams and the walls and buildings of Babylon, those that they took from other cities, they took stones and wood from other cities to build their own, those will become a witness against them on the day of judgment. That everything that they've accumulated, all their wealth and power, was not going to keep them safe from God's judgment. The third woe in verses 12, 13, and 14 says that they take pride in their accomplishments. The Babylonians thought to build something permanent through their plundering of the nations. They wanted to build their city on on their power, on their accomplishments, on their achievements. But the Lord says that all their efforts are in vain. Nothing built on sin will last. The fire of judgment will burn up all their achievements and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe, they take advantage of others in verses 15, 16, and 17. Babylon had no regard for the people they conquered. Just like a person who gets someone drunk to rape them, Babylon take advantage, took advantage of their newly conquered territories. They brought shame to them. They humiliated people. The violence done to Lebanon most likely refers to the Babylonians taking the, the famed cedars, these great trees of, Bab- of Lebanon, and taking them for their own construction projects and thus destroying the local animal habitat, hence the indictment against their use of animals and abuse of nature. The Lord says that Babylon will be taken advantage of themselves, and they will have their fill of shame instead of glory. They will drink from the cup of God's wrath. And the fifth and final woe says that they take direction from lifeless idols. Babylon was notorious for its idolatry. But idols are just proofs of their self-centered stupidity. They make pretty statues and treat them as gods to justify their own sin. The Lord says their idols are lifeless and speechless and useless. They will not save Babylon on the day of judgment, when all the earth will keep silence before the one true and living God. Now, this is a a convincing case against the invading 
Babylon. And I'm sure that as Habakkuk heard it, heard specific sins explained and exposed and specific judgments pronounced on this invading force, I wonder if he felt comforted in that. I think he did. Taking comfort that God will punish, that God will judge those who have come to hurt his people. But I also wonder at which point Habakkuk realized that his own people were guilty of many of the same sins. Could not have some of the woes been pronounced on Jerusalem, on Judah, on God's people. After all, if you remember, this was the prophet's initial complaint. This is why he started talking to God in the beginning of the book. Habakkuk 1, verse 2, 3, and 4, this is how this conversation began. He said, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? He's talking about violence in Jerusalem. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? The wrong and iniquity in Judah. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The very same things that Babylon was condemned for are happening in Judah. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Before the wicked Babylonians surrounded the righteous Judah, there was the evil Judeans surrounding the righteous Judeans. There were the evil, wicked people in Jerusalem perverting justice and paralyzing the law. Has not the case of the Lord v. Judah been decided? Isn't the Babylonian invasion itself God's judgment on the evil of Habakkuk's own people? If the answer to Habakkuk's complaint is that all evil will be punished, it must include his people's evil, too. I'm trying to get into the mind of the prophet as he hears these woes pronounced at Babylon, as he rejoices that the enemy will be punished, and as he also tries to internalize that and realize that we, too, are God's enemies. We, too, are in the wrong. We, too, should hear these woes directed to us. And, of course, any hearer of these woes, Habakkuk, or any reader of these verses, us, must see that they are indicting us too. You may recall the last, last week we saw the contrast between God and self, the way of faith and the way of pride. There are many conflicts and rivalries in this life, but none more intense and consequential than the fight of self with God. Is not every person guilty of being an invader, taking what is not theirs, plundering whatever they conquer, thinking they are safe in their accumulated power and wealth, taking pride in their achievements, taking advantage of others, of anyone or anything that cannot resist, invading God's glory by setting up and taking direction from lifeless, speechless, and useless idols. These woes pronounce judgment not just on Babylon, not just on Judah, but on the invader self. 
in the case of the Lord v. Self, all arguments have been heard and a ruling has been made. All invaders will be punished, says the Lord. It's not our glory that will fill the earth, but the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And we will one day keep silence at the judgment of the God of heaven and earth with no justifications, no excuses to mitigate our sentence. Habakkuk hears that. We hear that. We hear that indictment. We hear the Lord saying that the case against you has been heard and a decision has been made and a judgment has been pronounced. But we also hear the Lord, as Habakkuk hears the Lord say, that the righteous shall live by faith. The Lord mercifully says that before he pronounces the five woes on Babylon. He responds to Habakkuk's complaint about using Babylon for good by saying, before I will judge Babylon, before I talk about their sin, let me tell you about your faith. That the righteous shall survive this judgment by faith. Just as the faithful in Judah can survive the judgment of the Babylonian invasion by trusting God, all the invaders, all of us, can survive the judgment of God by trusting Him. Now, what does it mean to trust Him? That must be the question Habakkuk is asking. What does it mean for me to survive these woes by faith, by trusting in God? Well, to use the imagery of our passage, it means to surrender to God. To trust God means to surrender to Him. The invader self must experience a divine invasion and surrender to the divine invader. Before all the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the heart must be filled with the glory of God. Before all the earth keeps silence before the judge of the living and the dead, the heart must be silent. No excuses, no justifications, no promises to do better. Just a quiet heart before the grace of God. Now, we'll be looking at chapter 3 of Habakkuk the next two Sundays, and we'll, we'll consider in great detail what this surrendered, invaded by the grace of God's self looks like and acts like. It's really important for us to get that picture, and we get it in chapter 3. Habakkuk gets there. At the end of the book, he's at rest, overcome by God, trusting Him and rejoicing in Him. But right now, I want to make clear that the solution for the invader self under the judgment of God is the surrendered self at peace with God. I want us to get that point. We'll explain it more later, but I want us to see that the solution for the invader self under the judgment of God is the surrendered self at peace with God. The spiritual surrender is both excruciating and exhilarating. Death and life. Just as the Babylonian exile, it is freedom through, through slavery, peace through defeat, resurrection after death. Have you noticed how the New Testament frequently describes 
the Christian as a servant or slave of Christ. Or teaching that true life can only be experienced if we die to ourselves. Let me illustrate this. I think this is the the core metaphor, the core image in this passage is, is being invaded by God and finding freedom in that invasion. In January of 1934, the 27-year-old Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a sermon to his German congregation in London. He had left Germany just a few months before that sermon to avoid the pressures to conform to the new Nazi policies to to join the Reich Church and submit to Hitler's leadership. He was avoiding that. He didn't want to be a leader in that movement. He wanted just to, he said, I'm going to just go, go to London and I'm going to pastor. He did that, but however, when he got there, he realized that his retreat would not be long. God was calling him to take a leadership role in the church's struggle at home in Germany. And in this sermon that he preached to this London congregation of Germans, all wrestling with what's going on at home. Bonhoeffer himself was wrestling with obeying a call that would eventually cost him his life. His text was Jeremiah 20, verse 7. O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. In this sermon, Bonhoeffer describes the prophet Jeremiah as someone who was pursued, overpowered, and captured by God. He spoke of the prophet's call. It comes over a person from the outside, not from the longings of one's own heart. It does not rise up out of one's most unseen wishes and hopes. The word that confronts us, seizes us, takes us captive, binds us fast, does not come from the depth of our souls. It is the foreign, the unfamiliar, unexpected, forceful, overpowering word of the Lord that calls into His service whomsoever and whenever God chooses. Then it is no good trying to resist it. For God's answer is, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You are mine. Fear not, I am your God, I will uphold you. This irresistible invasion of God's Word ties the person to God forever and in the process reveals God's incredible love for the person. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, and then all at once this foreign, this faraway, unfamiliar, overwhelming Word becomes the incredibly familiar, incredibly near persuading, captivating, enticing word of the Lord's love, yearning for His creature. It is the path of someone whom God will not let go anymore, who will never again be without God. This means the path of someone who will never again, come good or evil, be godless. Bonhoeffer shows us the two sides of being captured by God, of hearing His Word come into your life. One, the side of irresistible will of God capturing you and overpowering you, and the other side of God's love being revealed in it, and the person accepting it, seeing God's love in that call, in that irresistible, foreign, unfamiliar call that becomes familiar and near. 
Bonhoeffer then speaks from his own experience. He says, God, it was you who started this with me. It was you who pursued me and would not let me go, and who always appeared in front of me wherever I went, who enticed and captivated me. It was you who made my heart submissive and willing, who talked to me about your yearning and eternal love, about your faithfulness and might. When I looked for strength, you strengthened me. When I looked for something to hold on to, you held me. When I sought forgiveness, you forgave my guilt. I would not have wanted it thus, but you overcame my will, my resistance, my heart. God, you enticed me so irresistibly that I gave myself up to you. And finally, Bonhoeffer applies it to all Christians. He says, not to be able to get away from God is the constant disquieting thing in the life of every Christian. If you once let God into your life, if you once allow yourself to be enticed by God, you will never get away again. As a child never gets away from its mother, as a man never gets away from the woman he loves, the person to whom God has once spoken can never forget him entirely, but will always know that God is near in good times and in bad, that God pursues him as close as one's shadow. And this constant nearness of God becomes too much, too big for the person who will sometimes think, oh, if only I had never started walking with God. It's too heavy for me. It destroys my soul's peace and my happiness. But these thoughts are of no use. One cannot get away. One must simply keep going forward with God, come what may. And if someone thinks he can no longer bear it and must make an end of things, then he realizes that even this is not a way to escape from the presence of God, whom he has allowed into his life, by whom he has been enticed. We remain at God's mercy. We remain in God's hands. Yet at this very point, when someone feels unable to go any further on the path with God because it is too hard, and such times come to each one of us, when God has become too strong for us, when a Christian breaks down under God's presence and despairs, then God's nearness, God's faithfulness, God's strength become our comfort and our help. Then we finally truly recognize God and the meaning of our lives as Christians. Not being able to get away from God means that we will experience plenty of fear and despair, that we will have our troubles. But it also means that in good times and in bad, we can no longer be godless. It means God with us anywhere we go, in times of faith and in times of sin, and facing persecution, mockery, and death. So why be concerned about ourselves? Our life, our happiness, our peace, our weakness, our sins, if only the word and the will and the power of God can be glorified in our weak, mortal, sinful lives. If only our powerlessness can be a dwelling place for divine power. Prisoners do not wear fancy clothes. They wear chains. Yet with those chains we glorify the victorious one who is advancing through the world, through all humankind. 
with our chains and ragged clothes and the scars we must bear, we praise the one whose truth and love and grace are glorified in us. Read that whole sermon, and you can get the notes online and and find that link. Read that whole sermon because he shows us the two sides of our relationship with God, being captured by his will, with seemingly no choice given to us, irresistible grace coming into our lives. And yet at the same time, finding that in that state of being captured, in that state of being invaded, we are free and are at peace. I wonder if you can identify with what Bonhoeffer is saying. Have you too become a prisoner of God? Have you experienced a divine invasion in your own life? Are you not able to escape God and yet at the same time you don't want to escape? You have learned that it is better to be his prisoner than a prisoner of your own sin. And while serving him means struggle and suffering and doubt and pain, all of that is meaningful and even welcome. Though you have been utterly defeated by God, you now see it as your greatest victory. Like Jacob, you wrestled with him and begged him to let you go. But he didn't. And he doesn't. And you are glad that he has pinned you down. Even if it has caused you to limp the rest of your life. Have you surrendered to his grace? Have you been captured by his love? Have you been enticed by him? Has he proven to be too strong for you to resist him? Now, the New Testament is clear that this experience, this divine invasion, happened through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, that irresistible unfamiliar foreign word that came to Jeremiah has now become human and familiar and touchable and breakable. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God invaded our world so that He can invade our hearts. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, uses a phrase reminiscent of Habakkuk 2.14. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The promise of all the earth being invaded with the knowledge of of the glory of God, is fulfilled in the face of Jesus. The image is even more vivid in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphant triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Paul is picking up on, on the themes from Habakkuk 2. 
the invader God who pronounces woes on all the invaders, but how does he get them? He invades them and they surrender to him. How does Jesus, the crucified and risen God-man, invade our world and turn invader selves into surrendered selves? How does he do that? He does it through redemptive substitution. Redemptive substitution. If you've been around church, if you've been around our church, and if you've read Scripture, you will know that the atonement, the work of Christ on our behalf, what He did in His life, in His, his death, His resurrection, His return, this is a big thing. But every aspect of the atonement has substitution at its center. However you look at what Christ has done, and there are many ways to look at it, you will find that central to everything He did is a substitution of Himself for us, doing something on our behalf, in our place, and thus redeeming us from that which enslaves us. In every aspect of atonement, Christ takes our place so we can take His. He becomes sin on the cross in our place so we can become His righteousness. This is the heart of the gospel. He goes, on, he goes into exile to bring us home, to invade our hearts with His love he himself is invaded by God's wrath. As you read the Bible, you see a certain gospel symmetry. Every sin is undone by Christ. Every woe is reversed in him. For example, we can correlate every one of the five woes to what Jesus did on our behalf with incredible accuracy. Jesus was plundered for the plunderers by paying our debt. You remember that the first woe is that you have taken what's not yours, and now there's a debt that must be paid, and Jesus pays that debt on the cross. Everything we owe to God has been paid by Christ. We took what is not ours, but Jesus repaid it with what is His by right. The second woe talks about a forfeited life. Jesus forfeited his life for us. He who, whose nature provides him with ultimate safety and security. He who alone dwells in, in, in inapproachable light, perfectly secure, invincible, gave it up for us, became vulnerable, and experienced death and destruction in our place. In the third woe, you remember we talked about taking uh, pride in, in accomplishments and achievements. Well, Jesus could do that. He lived a perfect life. Never sinned. Never did anything wrong to any degree. And yet, on the cross, He experienced the fire of divine judgment. As if His labors were in vain. As if He did everything for nothing. Instead of filling the whole earth, His glory was nailed to the cross on a hill outside the city. In the fourth woe, we talk, talked about people taking advantage of others. Well, Jesus was taken advantage of like one who could not resist the abuse of Roman power and the insecurity of religious envy. He was put up on a tree harvested from a nearby forest. He drank the cup of God's wrath 
and embraced the shame for us. And the fifth woe is the woe against idolatry. Jesus, very God of very God, light of light, eternal, perfect being, creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world, was treated as a pretender, as a blasphemer, as a false god. He was speechless and appeared to be useless in the face of death. And finally, he slumped down lifeless under the weight of our sin. It is the cross, this act of incredible love to those who deserve judgment, those who plundered God's glory and invaded God's creation with our selfishness. It's the cross that stops us dead in our tracks. The Lord is on His holy cross. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The earth kept silence on that Sunday morning when the women came to the tomb and found it empty. And then one by one, each disciple, as they encountered the risen Christ, was changed. And it keeps happening even now. Invader hearts surrender to Jesus, who offers life instead of death, righteousness instead of sin, and glory instead of shame. As our hearts are flooded by His love, we don't find it unreasonable to give ourselves completely to Him, to surrender, and to quiet ourselves before our Lord. And as we surrender ourselves to Christ, we find that the old self, the invader self, the one in conflict with God, was not the real self after all. In the service of Christ, being brought into the proper relationship with Him and His creation, we find our true self. Listen to C.S. Lewis. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And all the earth will keep silence before Him when Jesus returns in glory. And we will share in His victory over all evil, including our own. I'll finish with another quote from Bonhoeffer and then we'll take communion. This is how he ended his sermon. The triumphal procession of truth and justice of God and the gospel 
continues through this world, pulling its captives after it in the wake of the victory chariot. Oh, that God would bind us to the last, bind us at the last to his victory chariot, so that we, although enslaved and in chains, might share in the holy victory. God has persuaded us, become too strong for us, and will never let us go. What do our chains matter, or our burdens, our sins, sorrows, and death? It is God who holds us fast and never lets us go. Lord, entice us ever anew and become ever stronger in our lives that we may believe in you alone, live and die to you alone, that we may taste your victory. If you have surrendered yourself to God, if your invader self has been replaced with a surrendered self, come to this table and worship Him and rejoice in Him and rest in Him.